Everybody and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Pretty darn good. It snowed here in Calgary in late mid-April. It's like a spring snow. Right. You know, those spring snows that happen all the time. Yeah, it always happens in Calgary. <laughs> Uh, what's wild is like it's two degrees today with snow on the ground and yesterday was 20 degrees and sunny. Yes, but everything's melting very quickly. So that's why I'm like, I think it was like just a little too chilly for like a spring shower. Yeah, for sure. It's just, you know, people be like climate change isn't real. And I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, have you, have you looked outside lately? (laughs) Well, I'm feeling pretty good and feeling pretty positive. Do you know why? Why? We have a new patron. Nice. Thank you to Saf Dawson, our newest patron of the night. Thanks, Saf. 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 Safe. We're not sure. S-A-P-H. I figured it might be short for like Sapphire. Maybe. Or Sophia. Who knows? They would know. Mm Mm-hmm. No matter what the truth may be. What we know for sure is that they signed up to the Patreon, and for that, we are ever grateful. You can join Saf and all of our other patrons by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. So, Ben, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Pharaoh's Curse from 1957. Not, not even the. No, not just the. Just Pharaoh. Yeah, not the Pharaoh's curse. All right. Just Pharaoh's curse. Right, let me change my notes real quick. Mm. Yeah, if you if you type this one in as the Pharaoh's curse into Google, you will get different search results from typing in <laughs> Pharaoh's curse. We haven't had a mummy episode in a while. No. Um, I'm trying to think when the last Universal Mummy movie was. 1944. So it's it's been a hot minute. You want to um, refresh the listeners on like what mummies are? (laughs) And just a brief correction as well for myself, I guess. Um, Like the actual last like horror mummy movie was 1944. um, But the last universal movie with a mummy would be 1955's Abbott and Costello meet the mummy that's fair yeah who knows maybe the success of that is why we're getting this movie two years later I doubt it I actually very much doubt it yeah I have have because that's the last Abbott and Costello movie ever wait ever I knew it was the last like Abbott and Costello meet somebody movie but like I mean you could double check you could fact check me uh, but I'm pretty sure that's what uh, my research said. Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy was the final Abbott and Costello movie for Universal, which was their like original studio. Um, they did make one more movie uh, in 1956 called Dance With Me, Henry. Um, <laughs> that's the final. <laughs> Neither of them are named Henry. Uh, well, you know, they don't. They usually have character names. Yeah, but we all know who they are. Um, And that film was put out by um, United Artists. Mm. 
Well, in any case, mm-hmm. uh, it has been a hot minute yes. since we talked about the mummy. Mm-hmm. Our first encounter with a mummy was the mummy in 1932. Uh, if folks want to listen back to what we had to say about that film, you can head over to episode 35. Now, in that episode, we covered a lot about like ancient Egypt and burial slash mummification practices and stuff. We went really deep. So let me just kind of like cover like the the surface level sand of the the desert here. Okay, sure. <laughs> ancient Egypt is a really long period of time. Yes. But um, it's considered between 3100 BC to 330 BC. Yeah, that's, that's a really long stretch it's of time. It's a really long time. That's Ancient Egyptians believed that people were made of physical and spiritual elements. Uh, At death, the spiritual part was released and would move about freely, but that it must return to the physical remains, hence why they would uh, mummify um, people so that that energy has a place to return to. Yeah. Specifically, that energy was called ba, um, which you could kind of describe as like your personality. This personality, even in death, like remains in your physical body. So part of the burial practices and funerary rites were around separating the ba from the physical body so that it can go off into the afterlife and you can be in the afterlife. Once you've been separated, it's known as the ak, um, and you actually have agency. Think of it as like your ghost, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, Now that ba must return to that physical body each night. Has to get, you know, a good night's sleep before exactly. it can go back to the Go afterlife. party in the afterlife. Right, exactly. And I think what's key here as well is that only the pharaoh had a ba, so personality. All those commoners are just personality-less. Mm. Um, and therefore the pharaoh was the only one who would have an ak and therefore an afterlife. Huh. Commoners would just fade away. Right. Pharaohs were buried with mummified servants. They were buried with um, jars of like honey and food and treasure, a lot of stuff in these crypts. So naturally, to try to discourage people from coming in and stealing this stuff, there would be curses inscribed on these tombs, um, warning anyone who would disturb the dead. Hence, mummy curse. Right. And yet people did it anyway. Absolutely. You would have grave robbers. um, And, you know, even in like the 1800s and earlier, you would have like native Egyptians looking into these tombs um, and, you know, gathering artifacts of their own history. But Egyptomania and like modern Egyptology really establishes itself in the beginning of the 19th century. Mm. Um, part of this is, um, it was a really big deal in 1822, thanks to the Rosetta Stone, they were able to start translating ancient hieroglyphs. So they would be able to start understanding like what this stuff means. The idea of mummy curses Mm -hmm. were still well known, even without having these hieroglyphs translated. I don't want to say word of mouth or branding, but like... (laughs) People would know, like, you don't want to disturb the dead. Right. Um, As 
Egyptomania and modern Egyptology really began bringing word of mummy curses towards the Western world, uh, so Britain, the Americas, it became a, a theme in literature. The very first thing written uh, with a mummy coming to life to fulfill the curse was in 1827 from a Jane C. Loudon who wrote The Mummy! with an exclamation point. <laughs> there were a lot written. Uh, some that I'll point out are Edgar Allan Poe's 1845 work, Some Words with the Mummy, Jane Austen's 1868 book, After 3,000 Years, and Louisa May Alcott's 1869 work, Lost in a Pyramid. You would have anecdotal stories of like, oh yeah, this friend of a friend of mine heard of this one guy, this one archaeologist digging up a mummy and then losing his thumb or um, hearing cries at night until he reunited the mummy with its lost children um, and stories like yeah. that. Yeah, hearsay. But hearsay, exactly. Rumors. These fears of a mummy's curse seemed to come into reality once King Tut's tomb was discovered in 1922. The tomb was discovered by um, the English archaeologist Howard Carter as part of an expedition funded by George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. In total, there are eight deaths attributed to King Tut's curse, most notably Lord Carnarvon himself. Now, four months after the tomb was opened, and two weeks after a letter was published in the New York Magazine warning about curses and disturbing tombs, Lord Carnarvon died from blood poisoning due to an infected mosquito bite. He was not in Egypt at the time. No. With this very notable death, especially coming two weeks after someone wrote about, hey, don't do this, um, there's a big media circus around it. And even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle commented on it, suggesting that it was a cursed death. Uh, and he himself obviously was a writer of stories. We know him from Sherlock Holmes, um, but he's written stuff about mummies as well. Notably, his work titled Lot Number 249, published in 1892. And it's worth pointing out that like, at a certain point in his life, Arthur Conan Doyle went from being a like skeptic of like spiritualism to being like a hardcore believer yes. in it. So like, it's not necessarily like, Oh, the guy who did Sherlock Holmes who represents like reason and logic believed in curses. Ergo they're real. It's like, no, an old man who really thought seances worked believed in curses, which is not in any way inconsistent. <laughs> also kind of, putting wood on the fire of, oh no, mummy's curse, uh, was a little less than four months after the tomb was opened. A man named George J. Gold I, who happened to be Carnivon's half-brother, died of a fever after poor dental surgery. <laughs> the thing you have to like remember is like definitely the media played this stuff up a lot because yeah like eight people on the expedition died but they died over like the course of like what like the next 10 years yes and it wasn't even people who were related to the expedition 
Like people like the half brother. Right, exactly. He wasn't like there was he had no relation except for being the half brother. Um Sir Archibald Douglas Reed was a radiologist and he did X rays of King Tut. He died of a mysterious illness eleven months after the tomb was opened. And it's always important to remember in these cases that like people die. <laughs> Like that's like a universal thing that happens to people. So, yes. And I think case in point is Howard Carter himself, who discovered the tomb in 1922, oversaw the excavation of the tomb over the next 10 years up to 1932, and eventually died of lymphoma in 1939, around 16 years after the opening of the tomb. Yeah. So but it's still attributed to the curse of course it is but it's like wow this is the like weirdest slowest laziest curse <laughs> like ah i'll get around to it eventually <laughs> where are they gonna go it's worth noting that like the reason people paid so much attention to king tut's tomb even though there's like a lot of mummy tombs is because it was one of the only ones i think that didn't have all that grave robbing over the centuries. Like it, it had was... been lost to time. And so even grave robbers didn't know where to look to find it. So yeah. when they found it, it was like, oh shit, look at all the stuff in here. Yeah, it was it intact. It took 10 years to excavate it. So that's why it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was the first one after a long while that had like juice in it. <laughs> like probably <laughs> some literal juice, but also like treasure and gold and inscriptions and cool shit. <laughs> So we've had several mummy movies on the show before. Yes. First one was 1932's The Mummy. And I'm not going to rehash the plots because this isn't a sequel. You know, it just happens to have a mummy. But I thought it would be important to note the tropes we've seen in mummy movies thus far. Mm -hmm. So in the first The Mummy, we have The Curse and the mummy Imhotep. He arises and shuffles off into the desert, and he eventually finds that his long-lost love, whom he had be been mummified for trying to resurrect, um, has been reincarnated into a modern Egyptian woman. Technically half-Egyptian woman, but still. The next mummy movie we had was in 1940, The Mummy's Hand, and this wasn't a sequel, it though it was still from Universal, it was more like a reimagining because this time we have Karis as the mummy and he is controlled by Tana Leaf Juice. This film introduces the idea of a cult um, who use the mummy as, you know, a hand of vengeance or retribution on people. And of course, you know, the rituals that go along with the cult. Yeah, and they are mostly dedicated to protecting the mummy of this princess. Yeah, and kind of keeping it secret from the world. Right. But there is no longer the um like reincarnation aspect. It's just two mummies who used to be in love, but they're still just mummies for now. <laughs> In 1942, we got the mummy's tomb, um where we had a really great movie about that theme of retribution of a mummy coming and fucking you up because you took our shit in 1944 we had the mummy's ghost where we brought in that reincarnation theme yet again a modern egyptian woman whose family has immigrated to america is actually the reincarnation of this princess that Karis is trying to protect 
And then the mummy's curse in 1944, again a lady mummy who is resurrected by a cult ritual. So common themes through all of these movies. Now, we didn't watch Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy for the podcast. Um, I did a quick look at the plot summary, and there's nothing that we haven't seen before. Yeah, because it's still just like Karis and like the cult of Karnak and like the Princess Ananka. Like it's still playing with those specific to Universal tropes and ideas. Yes. Now, I don't believe we've had a mummy movie that hasn't been Universal. That's right. So this film, Pharaoh's Curse, it's kind of a combo breaker because it's not from Universal. And it's interesting to think about because, you know, Universal really put its stamp on what the werewolf looks like Mm -hmm. and its whole deal. And people trying to riff on werewolves had a hard time because so much of what people thought of as werewolf was like trademarked by Universal. With mummies, it's sort of the same thing. So it's Mm -hmm. been a little hard, I think, for people to come up with um, alternative stories with mummies, but also the mummy movies, they clearly made money because they made like four of them with the Karis series, but they were like diminishing returns and not good. Yeah, they were diminishing returns and they were also like clearly always second stringer to like the big three of Frankenstein, the Wolfman and Dracula, right? Like the mummy never crossed over with those guys. It was always kind of like on the same tier as... um the Paula Dupree movies. But I think you have something there about the copyright issues because so much mummy lore is kind of invented for those universal movies. Mm -hmm. Like one of the basic big things that sort of goes as a thread throughout those universal movies is the idea of like reincarnation. And if I remember correctly, like reincarnation isn't even like actually a thing in like egyptian afterlife beliefs honestly like the idea of like you live on in the afterlife and that's good Mm -hmm. so reincarnation if it does exist in ancient egyptian ancient egyptian myths um i would suspect is like a bad thing yeah then you're taken from the afterlife yeah i've never like run into it in like actual native Egyptian myths that I've ever heard. But after that first Boris Karloff mummy, it became like inextricably linked Mm -hmm. to Egypt in the public mind to the point where like, you know, one of the big through lines of the DC comics character Hawkman, who has like a weird connection to ancient Egypt. It's a long story is like reincarnation. And that idea of like two lovers reincarnated, together over the centuries but yeah like the tana leaf thing that's not a real thing that's something universal made up um so i think you have something there about like people not really being able to easily determine like what is legit and what did universal make up with the mummy stuff and not wanting to get sued because in the heyday of universal monsters Universal was very litigious, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, particularly against any vampire stuff that was too close to Dracula, anything like we never saw Frankenstein movies that weren't universal, even though Frankenstein's a public domain, you know, book, because so much of the iconic imagery of Frankenstein, like what the creature looks like, how he acts, how he sounds is specific to the universal version. Yeah, absolutely. 
However, the reason we are getting this movie has mostly to do with its producer, Howard W. Koch. Is he a Koch brother? No, you did ask me that question the last time we talked about him. Um, Because he produced The Black Sleep, which was directed by Reginald LeBorg the year earlier. Mm -hmm. So evidently that film did well enough uh, to convince Koch, who was a former assistant director for Universal back in the 40s, uh, to go another round with another like Universal-esque throwback movie. This time producing this mummy retro picture uh, as well as another picture to pair with it for the double feature. Um, That movie is Voodoo Island, which was directed by Reginald LeBorg and starred Boris Karloff, who was the one actor Coke didn't get for the reunion tour Mm -hmm. that was the black sleep. So Coke was this guy who had like worked for universal in the forties during the heyday of their monster films had produced this like, total retro throwback movie with the black sleep which had Lugosi and Lon Chaney and John Carradine and Basil Rathbone in like a spooky castle it's really good it's fun yeah that movie had been double bill paired with the U.S. release of the Quatermass experiment um, which was called the creeping unknown in the U.S. and had done really well and obviously this time around Coke figured out the like you make more money if you make both halves of the double feature uh, trick. So I think it's part of his wave of these universal sort of retro pictures that he's making. He would go on to become the head of production at Paramount Pictures in 1964. He would serve as the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences from 1977 to 1979. And he would also go on to produce such films as The Manchurian Candidate, The Odd Couple, Airplane, and Airplane 2, the sequel, and Dragon Slayer. Uh, But he still has a few more years of some schlock horror entertainment left in him at this point before he gets to be that more respected producer figure. <laughs> Sorry, the idea of like more respected with Dragon Slayer <laughs> is humorous, but continue. So with a budget of $116,000, uh, Pharaoh's Curse was the cheaper of the two movies versus Voodoo Island, um, and it ran as the second feature. Voodoo Island was the A picture. We're watching Pharaoh's Curse first because I didn't discover it was the second feature of the double bill till after I had already plugged it at the end of last week's episode. Uh, It's okay. They, you know, premiered on a double bill on the same day at the same time. Uh, So it's fine. Yeah. We'll just keep it in mind when we watch them. Yeah. So this would have been the second picture. The director of Pharaoh's Curse, Lee Sholem, was known as Rolam Sholem <laughs> because in his 23 years as a director over the course of 20 motion pictures and 129 episodes of television, he never once went over schedule. Nice. This wow. Is, this is a guy who brings things in on time, on budget. Um, he directed Superman and the Mole Men, the first Superman feature film from 1951. Wait, are these the Mole Men from mole people they're like munchkins okay is what they look like but they're from underground okay 
Um, that movie served as a pilot for the Adventures of Superman TV show, which Sholem directed 14 episodes of. He had been directing for eight years at the time he did Pharaoh's Curse, with 18 years experience in the film industry overall at this point. And he shot Pharaoh's Curse in six days. Oh my god. With all of the exterior shots in Death Valley done in a single day. So essentially this movie was shot on like the schedule of like an episode of television. Yeah. Not the budget though, right? Like the budget would be higher than an episode of television? Well, this cost $116,000. So probably higher than like an episode of I Love Lucy kind of TV. But I don't really know a lot about TV budgets in the 50s. So I don't really, I think the budget's like maybe comparable to a oh TV goodness. episode. Um, not sure. A little higher than like your average Roger Corman picture. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The screenwriter here was Richard Landau, who was one of the writers of the movie version of The Quatermass Experiment. And so because that movie got released as The Creeping Unknown with The Black Sleep, that put him in like Coke's, you know, radar. And so Coke would bring on Landau to write both this and Voodoo Island, as well as the later Howard Coke picture Frankenstein 1970, which comes out next year in 1958. So Landau had a long run writing for television after this. Uh, he wrote for shows like The Adventures of Fu Manchu, The Outer Limits, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Green Hornet, The Wild Wild West, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Incredible Hulk. Uh, and he also wrote for Disney's 1979 sci-fi film The Black Hole. This film's mysterious Egyptian woman character, uh, Samira, is played by Ziva Shapir, who was born Ziva Blackman in Palestine in 1933 and would change her name again to Ziva Rodan later in 1957. She first appeared in the very first Israeli movie, the war film Hill 24 Doesn't Answer, and she became the first Israeli actress signed to a Hollywood studio when she joined up with Universal International in 1956, who loaned her out for this picture. This is monumental. We actually have a Middle Eastern woman playing a Middle Eastern woman. For sure. Um, definitely still like not the same ethnicity, but we're way closer to the mark than we have been in the past. I think the closest we have been in the past was Turhan Bey, who is Turkish right. and was playing an Egyptian in The Mummy's Tomb. Right. Yeah. Um, among other roles that Ziva Rodan would play in her career, I will note that she would later play uh, Nefertiti, the hot lady sidekick to King Tut, in two episodes of <laughs> Batman in 1966. Because you paused, I was like, oh, Nefertiti, like, in a big movie? No. no next to white man King Tut, who's... Yeah whole story is I was an archaeology professor and got hit on the head. Yes, and now think that I am the historical uh, Tutankhamun. Which, by the way, <laughs> his like sexy lady girlfriend, which all the Batman villains had on that show, is Nefertiti, 
which is just I because... I think Tut's mom? Yes. Historically was King Tut's mom. It's 100% just because that's the only name like... Bra- yeah, name brand. Yeah, Branding. Exactly, exactly. The only Egyptian female name that Americans know. But anyways, uh, so our um, white lead actress here is Diane Brewster, who had a recurring role as a sexy con artist on Maverick from 1956 to 1958. Uh, then she was the Beaver's second grade teacher on Leave It to Beaver from 1957 to 1958. And then she was, among many other TV roles, uh, dead wife Helen Kimball on numerous flashbacks through the 1963 to 1967 run of The Fugitive. He didn't kill his wife. I don't care. I care. The film's score is by Les Baxter, who was an experienced swing musician and... <laughs> pop music composer uh, who developed the easy listening genre known as exotica Uh. so exotica is an easy listening genre that was meant to deliver like a fantasy pacific islands sound to white listeners with no real connection to like true indigenous music so when you think of like a 1950s tiki bar or like tiki party and then you think of like the kind of generic stereotypical music that we'd be playing in such a place or at such a party that's exotica if it doesn't have lyrics because it's meant to just be like easy listening background music wow so he's that guy um (laughs) he had written the score for the black sleep uh so that's why he's here doing this movie, he did this and also the score for Voodoo Island, as well as many other horror movies in the future. Little tease there. Yes. So the double bill of Pharaoh's Curse and Voodoo Island was released by United Artists in February of 1957. You can find both films on our Scream Scene playlist, and you can find Pharaoh's Curse on DVD from MGM's Manufacture on Demand program, which they call the MGM Limited Edition Collection. Okay. We'll see how this movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find that YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Pharaoh's Curse from 1957, directed by Lee Shulam. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Pharaoh's Curse from 1957, directed by Lee Sholem. Saying it like Pharaoh's Curse, like it's like Bobby's World, like it's like <laughs> a show on like the Disney Channel. Um, what did you think of this? This was fine. Um, there was some stuff in here that I liked that I thought was neat. It does a decent job of what it's trying to do, which is fill an hour. Yeah. Like, I think this is good for what it is. But in today's world here in like 2021, 
where you have like all of entertainment at your fingertips at all times. It's like, there's no real reason to like run out and watch this unless you're being like completionist about shit, whether that's like us, right. Whether that's like just mummy movies or like horror movies in general. Mm -hmm. But, um, but this was like fine. I didn't hate this. Yeah. Uh, same. I would describe this as satisfactory. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, uh, a C. Yeah. Like a a C plus maybe. Uh, (laughs) I don't know about the plus, but definitely a solid C, a solid 60%. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I would say this movie has a lot of interesting little ideas sort of sprinkled across like a fairly ho-hum story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, its not the worst mummy movie we've seen. No. Absolutely. Um, it's not the best, but... We'll figure out exactly where it lies later. Uh, <laughs> that is true. That's a whole other segment. That's First, right. First, we have to give the plot summary. That's right. So why don't you go ahead? It's 1902 in British-occupied Egypt. For some reason. For I, some reason. I, I, I guess, like, it has to be set in the past for, like the very concept of going on expeditions to like dig up tombs to really like work or like for the political situation that motivates the story to get started to work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's something we can talk about later, but it's definitely something that any mummy movie really has to deal with Mm -hmm. which is like if it's set in the present or like contemporary times like why are we here in like digging up artifacts Mm -hmm. in british occupied egypt in 1902 there are riots over the fact that the british are here (laughs) and um the colonel decides to send a captain storm uh out into finding and bringing back an expedition that left without Egyptian government approval. Yeah, so it's like the Egyptians are not happy. So clearly, like, it's a delicate time politically, maybe, for the British. And so, like, making sure nobody finds out that this expedition, like, went off without anybody saying yes to it is, like, important. Absolutely. Captain Storm is also tasked with escorting the expedition's leader's wife Mrs. Sylvia Quentin uh, to the expedition because uh, she showed up a little late and she can't stay in Cairo because then maybe word of the expedition will get out. So she is going along with Captain Storm and uh, two other soldiers. Who were both called from the Royal British Comic Relief Brigade. This is true. Heading up from Cairo, this journey seems to be going well uh, so far. Captain Storm was specifically told to go the long way to the expedition because the shortcut way through like ravine or something um, is where like the British army has been attacked before. So they're like, hey, avoid the shortcut, go the long way around. They meet an Egyptian woman in the desert. Her name is Samira, and she says that she's looking for her brother, Numar, and that he is on this expedition they are also looking for, and they have to find them before it's too late. Now, because she's in a hurry, she's like, why don't we take the shortcut route? And Captain Storm is like, no, that's going to be a trap. 
we're, we'll follow the map, which turns this fairly smooth journey thus far into hitting a lot of road bumps. First, they lose a donkey with a ton of their supplies. Then uh, a ton of water gets lost. And then there's a scorpion attack in the night that attacks um, Sylvia. And their medical supplies are now missing as well. So they're like, okay, at least they don't go, oh, we're cursed. They go like, something's up with Samira. We think Samira is doing something. Yeah. Um, But with this scorpion attack and with no medical supplies, they have to take the shortcut. Otherwise, Sylvia will probably die from the scorpion poison. So once they arrive to the expedition's camp, we cut to the team inside the tomb. This is where we meet Robert Quentin, Hans Brecht, Walter Andrews, Claude Beauchamp, and Dr. Faraday, as well as uh, their guide, Numar. Now, they say, you know, oh, we've been looking for uh, Rahadeb's tomb, and we think we know where it is, and this is just kind of like a preliminary tomb that we found. This is like the high priest's tomb. So let's read the sarcophagus and see what's up. And the sarcophagus, as expected, says, hey, don't open this, or you'll be cursed. Don't open. Dead inside. (laughs) Andrews is like, yeah... I think we should not do this. And everyone else is like, well, it's, it's up to Quentin. He's the leader. And Quentin's like, fuck all y'all. Let's open this shit. I'm American. Quentin is like this man of action type mm-hmm. where like, he's like climbed mountains and gone on safaris into jungles and like done every, like, like he's the most interesting man in the world from the Dos Equis commercials <laughs> basically. And like, will not tolerate like, Failure. Failure or like wimping out on things. Yeah. Mr. Robert Toxic Masculinity Quentin. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) So they open the sarcophagus, pull off the uh, death mask, and then they start to like cut through the wrapping so they can see what the mummy looks like. And as they start doing that, Neymar, who has like not been able to voice his opinion, no one asked him what he thought about opening the sarcophagus Mm -hmm. uh, starts to look really concerned and starts grabbing at his face where the men are cutting through the wrappings and he screams and faints and before they can kind of react uh captain storm comes into the tomb cut to (laughs) where we are in the tents at the camp Captain Storm has explained to Quentin and his expedition that, like, hey, we have to leave. You have to go back to Cairo. We'll do this as soon as Sylvia is well. And Quentin's like, well, fuck, I'm not going back to Cairo. Like, I'm, I'm not someone who fails at things. I need to find this tomb. So he goes to Sylvia and he's like, hey, um, I know you're feeling better, but can you play sick? Because I don't want us to leave. And the longer that you're sick, the longer I have. And she's like... No, because I came here to ask for a divorce. (laughs) What a twist. Now, it's not quite just a case of like Sylvia is asserting herself against her like narcissistic husband because like when she's been his wife, she's gotten this reputation as being woman of action who comes with him on all these exciting things. And the reason she wants to divorce him is actually because what she wanted to be this whole time was a stay-at-home homemaker wife. 
she's forgotten what it means to be a woman because she's been going on adventures. So yeah, lots of grossness wrapped up in that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not great either way. Yeah. Basically. Now I will say like, Quentin is like, no one would know who you are if it wasn't for me. When I picked you up, you were just a mousy little librarian. And that made Ben and I look at each other like, oh, God, is this the dark timeline of Rick and Evie O'Connell? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So because she wants the divorce, she's not going to fake being sick. But it works out because uh, Numar is getting worse. Um, He's... He's aging rapidly. Mm -hmm. His skin is going to paper. His teeth are rotting. And he suddenly has like this scar along his face. And Dr. Faraday is like, fuck Vino. What (laughs) any of this is like, this shouldn't be happening. And um, one of the other people on the expedition is like, do you think it's the curse? And he's like, I don't fucking know. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Like, I can't say whether it's the curse or not. I have no cause for why he's aging rapidly. The um, specific curse this time around obviously was couched in a lot of vague riddle language, but essentially was, hey, if you open my tomb, I'm going to possess you. Yes. I do like that they ask Samira at one point what's going on, and her only answer is just, I told you, we were too late. (laughs) Just very matter of fact. So they're like, okay, well, like, let's deal with this in the morning. That night, Numar escapes into the tomb, but not before we hear the cries of one of the horses uh, just, like, getting wrecked. And it turns out he's, the horse uh, has been killed for its blood. It's completely, I think they say deflated. Yes. Like, which is just like a really gross image. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as Ben said, Samira is not helpful. So they go looking in the tomb for Numar to be like, hey, like, is this some kind of creature? Is this Numar? Like, what is going on? As they go looking through the tomb, um, one of the sergeant's British comedic relief characters gets killed. And we see... Uh, when he gets attacked, that it's Numar approaching slowly, slowly, ever closer, (laughs) and then uh, grabs his throat. And when everyone finds him, he has a puncture wound on his neck and is also drained, emptied of blood. Mummy vampires. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like not the mummy in the coffin that's attacking, although... Actually, there's who knows. Um, there's some ambiguity there, but we'll get to it. Um, Numar has like the wrinkly, dried out skin of a mummy, and then like white hair, and then like the rotten teeth, and then like he's sort of wandering around, like hunched over in his like clothes that are now like too kind of big for him because he's kind of shrunk. So he kind of just looks like a really old man. <laughs> shuffling around and then like attacking people and this movie definitely falls into that category of like in order for the monster attacks to make sense people have to react to the monster in such a way that they kind of just like freeze deer in a headlight style and get backed into a corner because all you'd really need to do to get away from numar is just run anywhere yeah man numar should be respecting social distancing rules (laughs) Um, so they're like, okay, so we know that it's Numar 
doing this and now someone like a person is dead not just a horse so what the fuck do we do at this point is when um Hans Brecht and Walter Andrews have finished um translating this cartouche that's when we learn the full curse was that the high priest's spirit would possess someone who's opened his sarcophagus and kill all those who threatened the pharaoh's tomb um, so that it can remain hidden away in secret. And again, the doctor's like, fuck vinyl. <laughs> and he needs blood to live because his body's become a like living mummy where like the heart doesn't pump and it's all dried up and shit. Yeah. So they're like, okay, clearly we're in so deep. We need to dig deeper and find the Pharaoh's tomb and see if that's a way to stop Numar. <laughs> I guess. This is really just Quentin's excuse to, like, continue his expedition. He's using, like, the tragedies and weird fucking monster attacks going on as, like, a way to convince everyone to let him keep digging. Yeah, but Captain Storm is also really into it, so... Yeah, but he's been convinced. Sure. (laughs) So they continue digging for the tomb, and they can't seem to find it. Um, But uh, Hans Brecht, who... uh, goes wandering through the tomb by himself for by some himself, reason you know when there's a monster on the loose yeah. somewhere in these tombs um happens across what appears to be a dead end like they went digging went to a dead end where there's like this carved area from a tomb and then they just left it mm-hmm. and he's like huh he finds the secret like switch to like activate the secret door to get him into the room exactly And once he's in, he's like, whoa, this was a secret room. And there's like a neat thing where like he's wandering around with his torch and there's this central cat statue, a cat with tits um, in the center of the room. And as he's moving through, the shadow of the cat kind of moves across to another secret door, which when it hits that door, that door opens and our friend Numar comes through and he attacks Brecht. Now, Brecht manages to get away before all of his blood is taken, but he has terrible cat scratches on his face. Um, And because of his screaming, everyone comes running to look for him. And they're like, oh, man, he's dead. At this time, um, it's nighttime. And Sylvia, who has been told to stay in your tent, things are dangerous out here, um, is, you know, alone in the camp. And she starts to hear like a scratching sound. And then she sees the shadow of like a cat statue (laughs) move across her tent. And once it reaches the entrance, Samira walks through and she's like, Oh, Oh, it's just you, Samira. Okay. I, I was, why, why are you looking at me like that? No, no. Samira is like giving her like the evil eye or something. Um, and stroking her cat pendant. Sylvia runs out and into the tomb where all of the men are finds the secret room where all of the men are and goes in and she's like, she tells her story and she's like, yeah, it was like a shadow, like that cat statue in the middle of the room. So everyone rushes out to go ask Samira, like, hey, what do you know about cat statues? Hey, what the fuck? Everyone, that is, except for Quentin and Andrews. Quentin corners Andrews and he's like, you knew where this pharaoh's tomb was this entire time because you read the cartouche. And Andrews is like, I've been trying to tell you to stop, man. Like, we're in way too deep. We need to get out of here. And Quentin's like, no, no failure. Um, Pulls a gun on Andrews 
and takes him into the room that they've just discovered and is like, tell me where the entrance is. And before he can answer, Quentin starts beating him and gives him a black eye. Yeah, like he's like, tell me where the entrance is. I I said talk. And it's like, dude, you, you didn't give him a chance. Patience is not for men, Ben. It's not for Quentin, Sarah. Yeah. Robert, toxic masculinity Quentin, does not take no for an answer. As he's beating up Andrews, the secret door opens and Numar comes through. So Numar doesn't so much like attack Robert as kind of just like stand there alluringly like, come follow me. And, I'll like, show walk- you where the tomb is. Yeah, and like walks away down the hall. And Quentin goes, oh, this is my chance and goes through that secret doorway when a cave-in happens and he gets crushed. 10d6 bludgeoning damage from falling rocks no death saves because he's dead just absolutely crushed by this time everyone who ran outside to talk to samira uh can't find her and they go oh wait where's quentin and andrews so they all rush back in and they're like oh shit quentin's dead from this cave-in and andrews has a black guy and they all go to start to leave because they're like oh man well i guess that wraps up this little mystery and as they start to leave, um, one of the people, Beauchamp, um, who I forget if I mentioned yet, Beauchamp is just here to write about Quentin's He's here to, like, write, like, each person on the team has their own, like, specialty, right? Like, Faraday's obviously the doctor, and Hans Brecht is, like, good at, like... Translating. Right. Well, like, and I think it's Andrews does the translating, and Brecht does the, like, actual, like digging work of like you know clearing away all the dust and and cleaning up all the artifacts right that work yeah Beauchamp is here just Beauchamp is is Quentin's hype man yeah like he's just like all the time he's just like you're the best boss like I shall get rich writing your memoirs which we will say that you wrote because you are the great Quentin yeah he's very French anyway so he hears the sound that we've been hearing consistently when Numar goes to attack and he goes towards it into the secret room and sees Samira's cat pendant. And he's like, oh, well, that's weird. And then he hears the sound coming from the original like high priest tomb and everyone else does too. So they all crowd into there and they open up the sarcophagus despite the warnings. Like it's like, I mean, we've tread these tracks before guys but last time you know they had already opened this this sarcophagus and the last time they were in here the mummy itself was like missing mysteriously Mm -hmm. so now suddenly it's all sealed up again so they open it and they see that the mummy's in there and so they uh cut open the wraps on the face pull off the death mask and see that it's numar as like mummy numar right in there and they're like, oh, wow, like the high priest was Numar reincarnated as a modern Egyptian boy and was defending the temple. And I guess Samira, who always had weird cat things, was the reincarnation of the goddess Bastet, uh, the cat goddess. And they're like, oh, well, this is this is fucked up. So they all agree to cover it all up. Mm-hmm. And Beauchamp even rips up what he's written so far because he's like, well, A, no one would believe me and B, we've agreed to cover this up. Yeah. 
As far as the Egyptian government is concerned, no one was ever here. Yep. The end. So, as I said, there's a few interesting ideas mm-hmm. in here. Um, I just want to put out there that um, during the time of this movie, uh, British was in Egypt as part of a, quote, informal uh, occupation. Like, they considered Egypt a protectorate, even though Egypt didn't ask them to be there. Do you mean in 1902? Yes. Got it. And... that changed when World War I started. Um, and then there was a period of, quote, formal occupation, uh, which ended in 1922. And then there was another period of the British still being in, in Egypt and finally left after the um, Suez Crisis. Yeah, so they they pulled their troops out and, like, Egypt was, like, an independent kingdom for a while. And then kind of around the time this movie came out, actually there was like a revolution and it became like a Republic, but the British presence in Egypt was basically just so that the British could keep troops along the Suez canal so that the British could, you know, mm-hmm. maintain control of that canal. But then the new Republic leader was like, nah, we going to nationalize that shit and kicked the Brits out. Yeah. And, I mean, you can look up the Suez Crisis. It was a whole thing. It, it was a literal, literal whole thing. Um, but Israel, France, and Britain invaded Egypt, basically, to try to regain control of it. Israel had their own um, goals as well with, like, their own trade routes. And by the end of uh, that crisis, which was 1956, those dudes left and Egypt maintained control over the Suez Canal. Yeah, so you can see why this movie is set in 1902, basically just because to set it in modern Egypt in 1957, like the political situation is a little too like fraught to believably tell a story about like going and doing like Mm -hmm. mummy tomb raiding expedition shit. Yeah, and it's also like not even necessarily like fraught, but just like how do you explain like what's going on like these people going off on like a fun expedition yeah, while it, like it, there's a whole cr- like international crisis going yeah, on Yeah, it down doesn't the street? it doesn't make sense. It's like you want to do like a fun like rom-com luau movie set in Hawaii on December 7th, 1941. Like it just doesn't work. Yeah. That said, basically once we've used that date to set up like a political situation that justifies setting Captain Storm off after this expedition, any attempt to really like make things feel like 1902 is pretty much out the window. Yeah. Like we have a lot of 1950s style suits and cone bras Mm -hmm. in this movie. Like no one's trying to look like they're from the 1900s here. I mean, Quentin sort of does, but he just looks like, explorer yeah but like which isn't like necessarily dated (laughs) the actual like cut of the suits and stuff i mean in terms of like costume fair so it's about 22 minutes for them to get to the camp um so that first 22 minutes of the movie is like the wandering across the desert with sylvia and samira and i was really afraid that that was going to mean that like the rest of the movie would feel is kind of like dragged out and pointless because a lot of that journey section is just like basically a series of identical scenes of like captain 
we're out of water. Fuck up here was supposed to be guarding it, but he says he saw nothing. And then in the next scene, it's like, Captain, our horse is dead. And fuck up here was supposed <laughs> to be watching him, but he says he saw nothing over and over. So I was really pleasantly surprised that like the remaining 44 minutes of this movie actually have like a lot of scenes and, and yeah. plot and things going on. The pacing was really good. And it's like another kind of B movie. If it was like monogram pictures, let's say right. probably would have picked up right as um, that original expedition made camp. Yes. And then later on would have this Captain Storm and Sylvia and everyone show up later just as like more characters. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting to see it structured this way. Yeah. It was a little weird um, especially because like, so it's hard to really say who the protagonist of this movie is mm-hmm. from like a structural standpoint, because it's kind of Captain Storm because he's given the mission and he has to go off and do the thing. But Captain Storm is a completely one dimensional character who does not go through an yeah. arc. He's Captain Storm. Yeah. And that's his personality. Yeah, exactly. Um, nothing about Captain Storm like changes as a result of this experience. There's no arc there for him. The movie really is structured like it's a character study of Robert Quentin. Mm-hmm. And I know you kind of like characterized him as like toxic masculinity. And I don't disagree that that's like part of it. But his personality isn't really expressed in the movie as like, I'm a man's man. I'm Gaston. I'm John Wayne. It's more focused on the fact that he's like a narcissist and egocentric. Mm -hmm. He's a big larger than life personality who has bought into his own hype. And the movie's kind of this interesting character study of him by contrasting how all of the members of this team that work with him kind of relate to him because they all relate to him differently, um, including his wife. Yeah. And I mean, like when we meet the members of his expedition, like they conveniently each go one after the other about whether they should open the sarcophagus um, saying, and what do you, my translator? um, Yeah. Mr. Andrews uh, think about this. And he's like, no, I, I think we should slow down here. And what do you, Mr. Beauchamp, my writer, yeah. uh, say? Well, it doesn't matter what I would say. You'd do whatever you'd want anyways. It was an interesting way to kind of set up who these people are and how they relate to him. Yeah. And it's like, you can feel that like, you know, Beauchamp is very invested in the legend of Robert Quentin because he's like hitched his entire wagon to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrews, meanwhile, is very hands off, very matter of fact, And like, even once he translates the curse, right? And he's basically saying to them like, yeah, so the cartouche says that whoever opens up the tomb is going to like get possessed by the spirit of this mummy and then they'll turn into a mummy and then they'll have to drink blood. And Captain Storm's like, you expect me to believe that there's a mummy walking around drinking blood? And Andrew's like, no, I don't expect you to believe anything. I'm just telling you what was written on the cartouche. (laughs) Um, It's those moments are great. Yeah. So. The thing is, is this movie and and like, so Quentin is the character who has like a conflict. Like, do you keep risking lives to go after your goal or do you like learn a lesson in humility and like abandon this thing? Mm -hmm. And maybe reconcile with your wife at the same time. Right. Um, But because this movie is a horror movie about like assholes getting their comeuppance, 
um, he's not going to go through that arc. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead, he keeps pushing on and gets the like just desserts, right? Just desserts. Yeah, thank you. Him and his wife, that relationship has the most like actual drama going on Mm -hmm. in it, um, which, you know, kind of positions Quentin as the protagonist, given that like he's the one actually pushing the events of the story forward. But of course, he dies at the end. When I say that the movie could be an interesting character study of him, what I, you know, I mean could be. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, all of the interesting stuff going on with him and his men and his personality and like this, this exploration of who he is as a person is just sort of like flavor and filler for the kind of standard ho-hum mummy story that is going on. And the overall feel I got of this script is that it was probably written with a speed that is similar to the speed that this movie was shot, right? Like this thing (laughs) was, yeah, like this thing was shot in a week and I feel like the script was probably written really quickly as well with very little thought to like, you know, any cohesive thoughts of like structure or theme. It was just like, I'm writing a mummy story and what's interesting in it are just sort of accidents of writing where like in the process of writing Richard Landau was, you know, I have to, put some dialogue here to fill in these pages and came up with some like interesting ideas, but you know, didn't go back and like revise the movie to then like structure the movie around those ideas that organically came out in the process of writing it because the thing had to shoot on Monday kind of feeling. Right. I think that's a sign that the writer has potential. Mm -hmm. The the movie itself, like the, the sets, for example, Mm. are, are also like shoddy and rushed. In the in a, but like satisfactory, right? Yeah, like, they're bigger. Yeah, than you thought they would be. Like for a movie like this, it isn't just like one cave set. Like there is a big series of interconnected caves and chambers. But then, when you take a look at like the hieroglyphs on the walls and stuff, it's like someone's like eighth grader son was brought in <laughs> to like paint these on the weekend. Like they don't quite have faces. They're almost like that botched painting of jesus of jesus yeah the botched rest- restoration <laughs> yeah um because yeah they they don't quite have faces yeah they're, they're a little vague yeah um so like squint and and you'll get it mm-hmm. um but like they're workable they're satisfactory they set like the mood they establish that this is an egyptian tomb there is you know i i don't want to just say attempts but attempts at lighting and darkness but it all still feels way too bright in a weird way. It's, it's, they have enough shadow in the tomb to make it clear when we're outside versus inside. The shadows are very functional in the sense that they are telling you whether a space is dark or bright, because either way, the caves are lit well enough that the audience can always see what's going on. Yeah. Um, even if like in the story of the movie, they're supposed to be pitch black, right? And so ultimately... The feeling that I got because of how functional the lighting is, but how like there's no real attempts to use the shadows to create like atmosphere. Yeah. You know, and also the fact that I think there's maybe about 45 minutes worth of story in this 66 minute movie. This feels like television to me. This feels like an episode of television. It doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like if you told me this was an episode of like an anthology horror TV show, I would believe you. There's nothing here that feels motion picture really to me. Yeah. For the lighting, what I was particularly thinking of is um, in the beginning, 
Mm. Uh, to establish that there's a riot, a rock gets thrown through the colonel's window um, as he's hearing from these soldiers who escaped the, the mob. And someone tells the colonel, like, hey, dim your light so they don't know you're there and we'll stop throwing rocks. And so he does that. And then we get some, like, slanted um, shadows from, like, uh, blinds coming yeah. through. But it's like he turned down his light, but there's still enough ambient light that it feels like a fully lit room. And the only change was the, uh, like, appearance of these slanted shadows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The when we're in a room that's supposed to be dark, it's not that it's any less bright. It's that there's been an addition of shadows, which just means they've put some things in to like block the lights in key places. Right. So yeah, it was just like interesting things like that. So it's, it's not like they aren't trying. Mm -hmm. It's just, they aren't doing so with the goal of achieving a dark moody atmosphere. Like you see in other horror or German expressionism or film noir. Yeah. Because it's just to establish like story points. Like this room is dark. Now it is night. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the movie is being shot with an eye towards efficiency more than anything else. Right. Which I guess makes sense with the director. Yes. That's his whole deal. Um, I, I am shocked that all of the outdoor scenes were shot in a day because there's a lot of outdoor scenes. Yeah. Um, but it must've just been like a one take situation. Yeah. Just like we got it. We're moving on. Um, I think, um, it might be worth mentioning that the idea of, um, a mummy's spirit or an Egyptian spirit possessing someone as enacting that Pharaoh's curse is an existing trope in what I'll call like mummy related literature okay up to this point um i didn't mention it in some of the earlier ones but it is in some of the 1800s literature got it i think this is sort of the first time we've seen it on film though you could like make the case that it is in the universal mummy movies well it's the it's playing with the same ideas right like we're still associating mummies with reincarnation yes but like explicitly like they call it out yes but the mechanics of how this story works definitely are one of the things with this movie that gets filed in my head under like interesting, but not actually like pulled off well. Yeah. So like best as I can understand it, the idea here is you've got the Pharaoh in his tomb and then the Pharaoh made the high priest like swear an oath to like protect him after death. So the high priest got buried along with the pharaoh with this curse on the high priest's tomb that says like if you bust open his tomb his spirit's gonna come out and possess you and you know then you'll turn into a mummy that will need blood to live and you'll attack everyone who opened up the tomb yeah but like then you know and all through the movie they're establishing like how did Numar get the job of being your guide and like all these kind of things that are meant to be maybe giving like an atmosphere of mystery around Numar who never actually gets a line he never gets to speak he gets to scream yes and then Samira is very mysterious because she like is with the 
team going out through the desert at the start of the movie and like all this stuff is disappearing but there's no like physical evidence of it disappearing and she like stays up all night like looking at the moon and and being weird and shit and she only (laughs) speaks in like broken english riddle sentences and and so on and so there's this reveal at the end that like numar was the reincarnation of the high priest and samira was actually um what they call her in the movie is bubastis um but bubastis is actually the city where bast's primary temple was bast being the uh, egyptian cat goddess um bastet is also like an equally valid rendering of the name because we don't know what fucking ancient egyptian sounds like um but i feel like bast is the form that most people are like pop culture familiar with i will note that one of bast's roles as a goddess was as defender of the king yeah so that's like consistent but if you like start thinking about it it's like okay if the high priest's job was to protect the king and this guy was the reincarnation of the high priest what you're suggesting is that he let defilers get into the king's tomb far enough to activate the curse like meanwhile bast is trying to prevent the curse from getting activated presumably because she doesn't actually want these people to die if they don't have to but like this high priest reincarnation was like no we're gonna get this close to defiling the king so that i can activate plan mummy and kill them (laughs) well it it would make sense if numar didn't know right but it's like they use the fact that he's the reincarnation to explain why he chose to be their guide yeah and it's, and it like that's how they even sense. no that's how they even come up with the idea that he was the reincarnation they're like oh he must have if he's the re- like if the plan was to use the mummy to kill these guys you know or if the plan is that the high priest spirit is going to possess someone and that's going to kill these guys why would you have the person getting possessed turn into a mummy the like most shambly slow yeah. inefficient way of killing a dude right <laughs> And if the high priest has a body that's reincarnated, that's like a younger version of himself, like, why didn't he just kill these dudes before they made it to the tomb? And then there's the fact that after Numar gets possessed, the actual mummy body goes missing from the tomb. And it's implied that Bast in cat form, like, carried it out because there's these cat prints leading away from the tomb. But then once Numar's job is complete he's in there as the mummy all wrapped up with the face mask again so it's like like i get that it's magic i get that it's magic so it doesn't matter yeah but like what's the loop here like was he just the priest the whole time so these are valid questions yes i will say it makes more sense than karis yes um so i think if we really want to figure out what happened Mm -hmm. um samira in cat form takes the mummy out mm-hmm. and Numar was recovering up until Samira visited him. Sure, yeah. And she's the one who basically put the mummy in him. <laughs> Which again is weird because it's like she was the one trying to prevent the curse from getting activated. But she's like, well, you opened it. Right. Nothing else we can do. Right. You've sealed your own fate. Right. My hands were tied. Right. But like I said, 
it valid questions makes more sense than Karis. It, it's it's like they were trying to come up with like a clever twist mm-hmm. on mummy stuff so that it would be different, you know, from the universal stuff. So it's not like the mummy doesn't actually get up and start attacking people. It's like, oh no, this person gets possessed and turns into a mummy. And like, that's different from the universal stuff. But like in trying to give it like a, a little haha clever, like oh Henry twist at the end, <laughs> it like doesn't make a lot of sense. And in terms of audience satisfaction, the ending is super underwhelming mm-hmm. because there's no like final confrontation with the mummy. Like Sylvia, like, listen, I get that the damsel in distress thing is like very reductive and, and regressive and like not great, but it does work well as a climax, right? When you have a damsel and she is neither like going to be, you know, kicking ass and taking names because she actually doesn't want to be a woman of adventure, but you're also not going to put her into distress. It's like, why is this character here? Yeah. And the climax, quote unquote, of this movie is just like Robert Quentin getting hit by the cave in. Yeah. Really. Him, him going through a door and activating a trap. And then the mummy just decides like, cool, my work here is done. And that's super weird because, yeah, Quentin was the guy, like, pushing the expedition to do the things. And so he definitely needed to get his comeuppance. But, like, the curse, you know, is I'm going to kill all who fucked with this, right? And that's how these curses, like, normally work, right? It's like you go after everyone. And so it's weird that, like, once As soon as Quentin is done the whole thing's done yeah and if it was okay you're only going after quentin then why'd you kill the other dudes right like why did you kill uh, especially like dudes who weren't on the expedition like the sergeant yeah right who had nothing to do with anything wrong place at the wrong time i guess yeah so the priest mummy just decides to like stop killing people because hey the hour's up and (laughs) our heroes do nothing to stop the mummy is the thing right so it just happens to stop right and it's not even like they've survived its attacks it's just like they lasted long enough for quentin to like step on a trap and get like Mm -hmm. killed by falling rocks and then it's like cool well that was fucked up and weird let's just seal this place off and leave and never talk of it again (laughs) so it's not that the ending is necessarily bad it's just it's one of the things that makes this feel like a tv episode because it doesn't have any real feeling of climax or closure or closure. Well, yeah. So it's, you know, the reason I say it feels like TV is it's as if like, Oh, we need to keep all these characters alive for their next adventure. And like Quentin was like the guest star of the week. So of course he was going to be the focus and then die at the end. Like that's how it's structured, which is weird. Yeah. I thought more people would die because we have a lot of people in this cast. Yeah. Um, and really, the death count is two. Oh, three. three. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, and I guess Newmar. But was he always dead? Well, it's the sergeant. It's um, Brecht. It's... Quentin. The Fr- oh, the French guy doesn't die. He no. just... Okay, so Quentin and... He and, dies creatively, Ben. Right. And <laughs> and Newmar, quote unquote, if he was ever alive to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So four-ish. It's a little weird. Yeah. Because, like, we aren't watching an episode of Captain Storm and his jolly adventurers like you know (laughs) so like what's what's going on here yeah i think it does succeed as a universal throwback Mm -hmm. um and i think it's interesting to think that like someone who 
might have grown up with the Karis movies, because they all came out like within like three years of themselves, um, would be around 20 years old now at the youngest. Right. Watching yeah. this. And it's not like they would remember exactly what happened in those. They would just remember like, oh, fun adventure with a mummy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they would get out of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's sort of neat to think about like, Howard Koch was a assistant director for Universal around the time those movies were getting made. So it's like he's turning around and doing riffs off movies he like worked on when he was younger, but wasn't in any kind of creative position on, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some like neat things in the movie outside of like the story beats. The soundtrack does some cool things. Yes. I was really worried about the soundtrack after mm. you, you described the dude, but it works as like, oh, uh, and it, an adventure kind of soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And it does do, as you're about to explain this neat thing when the horror starts. Yeah. I mean, so there's this like sort of wind, like theremony kind of noise that happens whenever the mummy is about to get involved that Sarah mentioned during the plot synopsis. And then once Numar's like on screen shuffling towards you to kill you, it's like, I think what it is is it's a symbol clash that's being like played in reverse on a loop. Yeah. Which is like a neat effect because that's like a weird post-production effect and you don't really see that getting used mm-hmm. a lot in movie scores, you know, up to this point. And it has this really neat effect because if you've ever heard a symbol crash in reverse, It kind of sounds like a heart stopping. Sure, yeah, and because it's it's a sound that's like, like fades kind of go in. Bl- yeah, it fades and then, in and then suddenly stops. Yeah, and um, as Numar is getting closer, the symbol is speeding up. Mm. And so it feel you can feel the tension kind of going up. And it's such a different sound from the rest of the soundtrack and the score that it really does make it feel like a... Th- um, I guess ethereal Mm. or like strange. Yeah. I mean, just because Les Baxter like created a genre that was kind of based around like dodgy racial politics doesn't mean that he didn't create a genre of music. Right. I I wasn't sure. Like, is this going to sound like library tracks stereotypical, Mm. like not intentionally like actually library tracks, but everyone ripping off of him making stuff so i wasn't really sure what we would get but you know it was functional it, it was worked. good yeah, and then I it had it's... some neat stuff with the horror yeah absolutely i think like a lot of parts of this movie there's a feeling like it could have been more with more time mm-hmm. like if this had been a movie that they maybe spent like two weeks on yeah. instead of a week maybe it could have been really something special there's a lot of like neat gruesome stuff in here like you know deflated horse corpses and like at one point Numar tries to get away from like the scene of a moiter and they like grab his hand to like pull him back and he just keeps shuffling forward so then they just have a mummy arm like detached at the elbow and it's just like a dead thing and they like try to like dissect it and it just like crumbles into dust and stuff yeah it's a neat prop um, you have your know, bodies drained of blood, dead bodies with cat claw scratches with blood on their face. The makeup is pretty good. Like the, the old age mummy makeup for Numar and stuff with like the 
the fake teeth and everything. Yeah, I think it it works. It's not as in depth as Boris Karloff's mummy no. look, but I mean like that, like just specifically that intro of yeah. the mummy. Um, he he was in that for like twelve hours or something. Yeah, for the, them the to makeup process was crazy and it was not something that you could replicate in this movie but for the time this movie was shot in like they do a pretty good job so i really liked the makeup and the gore effects in this movie and when you see them like touch his skin when newmar is first turning mummy like it looks papery and they actually touch it they aren't like pretending to touch it because they don't want to ruin whatever makeup is on there yeah exactly um i think that's mostly because we've gotten to a point in makeup technology by 1957 that we have like um like latex prosthetics that's that true. aren't just like sort of painted on spirit gummy kind of things um so you can like touch them and they'll react in a way that doesn't look like makeup right mm-hmm. um but yeah so like impressive stuff for a movie this cheap shot on this kind of budget and time this is a movie that i think could have been better if they had prioritized wanting to make a good movie rather than prioritizing getting the movie done yeah um well let's move on to ranking and see how it compares to others so sarah i just sort of have a spot picked out so interesting why don't you go first and we'll see if my spot is in your range so the original mummy the 1932 the mummy is ranked at number 117 the highest ranked mummy movie is The Mummy's Tomb at 95. Which is right around the halfway point of the list. I guess so. Yeah. And The Mummy's Tomb, I mean, it's the highest ranked Chorus movie. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is fairly good. Mm. Um, and it does it does stumble because it still has like the tonneau leaf junk and and stuff. But it's really fun with the retribution yeah. of these adventurers. Ultimately, the biggest problem with it is the problem that so far all of the mummy movies except Karloff's have had, which is that mummy be slow, yes. mummy be stumbly, mummy be shambly. Um, zombies are the same, but there's like a huge crowd of them. So you can get like cornered and, and crowded fucking Karis is like a cartoon snowball, like just run to the side rather than back away in the same line. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, the mummy's tomb. Like, well, we, we've kind of just said like, it's good, but it, it's still bogged down by a lot of things. One thing I think that you can really credit to the Pharaoh to Pharaoh's curse is that it doesn't feel bogged down in the way that the Chorus movies are with the Tana Leaves junk. Um, and even the 32 Mummy felt bogged down because it's trying to make a Dracula but Mummy movie. Yeah, they always had very slow pacing for one thing. And ultimately the biggest problem with the Chorus movies, not individually, but as a series, is that every single mm-hmm. one has the same plot like the beats are the same and so even though like the beats in this one are very predictable like go to tomb open tomb activate curse mummy comes after you it's not literally the exact same plot beats as all of the universal mummy movies yeah so i was like okay i think i could put pharaoh's curse above the mummy's tomb Hmm. so i set that as my floor Hmm. 95 
And as I started looking up, I was like, yeah, okay, but I can't really go above things like white zombie at sure. 79. Yeah. So I put my ceiling at 81 Strangler of the Swamp, another slower paced movie where you know, I think the makeup is comparable. I think the suspense is maybe a little comparable. And, you know, right below Strangler of the Swamp, we get into movies like The Ghoul, uh, where it's like, uh, is this, like, how, how good is this? Mm. But above Strangler of the Swamp is Invisible Ghost, which I really fucking enjoy. Mm-hmm. So my range is 81 to 95. So you're way higher than me. <laughs> Interesting. Which I'm surprised about because I I thought I liked this more than you, but it looks like you liked this more than me. So one thing we forgot to mention about this movie is that it has a fake out jump scare. Yes. Where Sylvia is in the tomb. She's wandering around. She's trying to find everybody else. And suddenly a hand grabs her from like out of a corridor. And then it turns out it's just one of the comic relief British guys. And I mentioned this because... While this movie has a lot of neat ideas and while this movie is doing something a little bit different than the standard universal movies and while this movie has some neat like gore stuff in it, I think this movie fails to be scary in Mm. a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the like rushed TV episode feeling of it really makes it fall down compared to other horror movies of the day that we've been seeing, right? We've been talking lately about the way that horror movies have been kind of like learning how to be fucking scary again because they need to give you something you can't see on TV. And while I don't know if you could show some of the gore in this on TV in 1957, the overall like sense of how much my blood pressure was raised is similar to like an episode of Star Trek or something. Um <laughs> I see what you mean. That's very fair. So I was looking way down. I did start by looking for the mummy and then the mummy's tomb. And I decided that this was not as good as either of those because what this movie is missing that those movies had in spades is atmosphere. Absolutely. This movie. Even the like intro of the 32, the mummy is way scarier than anything you feel in Pharaoh's curse. Yes. And the mummy's tomb has, you know, yeah, cars shuffling around suburbia, but it's like at night and it has like a proto Halloween kind of feel. Um, that's really cool. So teens even get threatened. Exactly. So I looked down to try and find some of the other mummy movies and all the other mummy movies are sort of clustered in the one forties. Uh, so we have the mummy's curse at one forty-two, the mummy's ghost at one forty-six, the mummy's hand at one forty-seven. So the mummy's hand is the one that is sort of structurally the most similar to this because it's the one that's actually about an expedition that goes to Egypt and like busts in a tomb and gets attacked by a mummy. But I did think this was better because as much as like the revenge scheme here doesn't really make a lot of sense if you put your mind to it, you do have to put your mind to it for it to not make sense. Unlike the mummy's hands revenge scheme of I need to go to the person I want to kill while they're sleeping and place this tana juice next to them and then leave so that my extremely slow undead minion can come and kill them when I could have just easily 
made this one step shorter and killed them. Yes. And you don't even need to think about it to realize that weird plot hole, right? Mummy's Ghost, which is one above that, is the one where the Princess Ananka has been reincarnated as a sexy college student. Um, Her actual mummified corpse exists as like a separate thing. And then I don't remember the exact (laughs) nature of what goes on, but basically Ananka's spirit that's in the college student gets taken out of that and put in the Ananka mummy. And then the Ananka mummy resurrects and then ends up buried in the bog with Karis, which is just about as complicated as anything in like this movie is. But I prefer my mummy movies to actually be in Egypt and in tombs and like that kind of setting. But at 142 is the mummy's curse, which is the last Karis movie. It's feeling real tired by now, but the mummy's curse has one really standout scene which is the scene where Ananka's mummy rises up out of the bog yeah and like starts like walking around and the acting there by the actress to like convey that she's like a 3000 year old mummy that's been like sealed in a bog for a couple years well like six months I don't know is (laughs) really good yeah and it's really creepy and as good as the makeup is in this movie Numar is never creepy Numar looks like he should be wandering around going like, has anyone seen my teeth? Um, oh boy. It's, it's, he's not that scary. <laughs> um, what makes that really work for you, Ben, is you're wearing your grandpa's sweater. <laughs> so, so you were thinking probably below, below the, the mummy's, mummy's curse, curse. but above jungle woman. Right so below, that? below the mummy's curse is jungle woman. Yeah. And like these mummy movies, I had to remind myself which one is Jungle Woman. All of Paula Dupree's stuff kind of blur together. Jungle Woman is the one where it's still Aquanetta playing her and there's her stalking people through the woods and there's the bit where she's like underwater like with the couple in the boat and just all kinds of stuff that's like I think a little creepier than anything in this movie. Below that is Roger Corman's Monster from the Ocean Floor which is the first Roger Corman movie, but it does have that that adorable, adorable one-eyed octomonster. Amoeba thing. Yeah. That I feel like you'd, you could just put like a little top hat on. Right. And give it a little cane. But at least the female lead in that movie has a purpose and a personality and like knows what she wants and is going for it. Um, and is a better like, f- I, I hesitate to use this word, but like female role model than Sylvia in this movie. Like, the thing is, Ben, I think it's important to acknowledge that Sylvia is also trying to go for what she wants. Yes. Which is a homemaker role. And it is a little, like, cringy when she says that because she hasn't been able to be a homemaker, she's, quote, forgotten what it's like to be a woman. But it's still, like, a worthwhile thing for a woman or anyone to want to be. Yeah, that's true. It's, like, valid to want to be a homemaker. That's totally fine. It's just the way it's written is... is Absolutely. It's a terribly written thing. And the fact that that's the only thing we really get about why she wants this divorce. Nothing about... Like, you can read between the lines, but there's not much about Quentin being that narcissist. Not thinking about her needs. Not thinking about, like anything other than himself yeah 
that's the stronger character point that they should have stuck with. Cause yeah. she does mention like, you never really cared about me or my needs. It's just like kind of weak sauce that her needs are. I want to be in the box that society has made for me. Right. Yeah. Here in 1957, regardless, 145 is the Neanderthal man, which is some gross trash. Oh, yeah. So the spot I had picked was 145 below monster from the ocean floor above the Neanderthal man. But this is way below uh, your floor, which was 95. So do we want to just like look in the middle here or how are you feeling? Um, your rationale makes a lot of sense. In around this range, I see Bride of the Monster from 135, another universal throwback. Mm. What do we think about comparing these two? Like... Pharaoh's Curse, I think, manages to be its own thing a little better than Ed Wood's love letter to Universal. Yes, but there are no characters, even with this movie being like this pseudo character study of Robert Quentin, there are no characters with as much like pathos or like well-developed dimensionality or even like a acting performance as good as Bela Lugosi's character in that he movie. He really does do a great job in there. Yeah, it's it's really like the final true Bela Lugosi performance and he's really giving it his all and the writing is up to the task of supporting mm-hmm. that performance. It's also a movie with that unique um situation of like if you had a bit more time and a little bit more money mm, it Ed Wood really could have been Roger Corman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um I think, okay, thinking about this a little bit more, I'm I'm cool with your spot, honestly. Do we want to go above or below Monster from the Ocean Floor, which also had like an overbearing kind of sexist male lead? Yes. The budget of that movie was like 20,000, right? Uh, yeah, 20 or 30,000. So barely like, quote unquote, a real movie. <laughs> yeah. But... It feels like a movie, not a TV episode, right. which I think is interesting. Usually we consider how much of a real movie it is <laughs> um, when we get to like moments higher on the list. But I think that might be a, a just another another thing in Monster from the Ocean Floor's favor uh, sure. against Pharaoh's Curse. It's one of those Roger Corman things of like using what he has really well. Yeah. Yeah. Like a submarine. <laughs> right. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm good with your spot. Okay. Uh, well, then entering the list at the new number 145 is Pharaoh's Curse from 1957, directed by Lee Sholem. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screenscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to all of the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever podcasting app you prefer by using our RSS feed. If you want to help the show out, you can do that by leaving a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Um, Those help contribute to the algorithms of the system, suggesting the show to new listeners. If you want to bypass 
the algorithms of the system, you can just suggest the show to new listeners yourself, uh, whether on social media or from six feet away wearing a mask, whatever sort of floats your boat, but let people know that there's this cool podcast that you like listening to. If you have the means, another way that you can help the show out is by heading to our Patreon, like we mentioned, at the top of the episode. Be like Seth Dawson and all of our other patrons of the night. You can join them by signing up for as little as a dollar a month. At the $1 level, you're going to get thanked on the show. At the $5 level, you're going to get access to weekly bonus audio. At the $10 level, you get access to some of our more elaborate projects, um, short stories, movie reviews, essays, uh, soundtracks, audiobooks. We've done a lot of different things over the years. And of course, you always are going to get access to the levels below you as well. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Uh, you mentioned it, but what are we watching next week, Ben? So next week, Sarah, for episode 200, bum, bum, bum. we are watching the top half of the double bill that this was on. Uh, Voodoo Island, directed by Reginald LeBorg, written by Richard Landau, and starring Boris Karloff. Amazing. I'm looking forward to hearing what Karloff's been up to since last we saw him. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, it is also, he's uncredited, but it is also the first movie role of one Adam West. Oh my God. The first movie role? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, uncredited. Yep. <laughs> Blink and you miss him. Uh, well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.